and unsurpassed, penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas having it to see and listen to to remember and accept i vow to taste the truth of the tathagata's words good morning everyone it is a crisp chilly winter day here in berkeley and uh kind of been unseasonably cold, but it's fine. Uh, I wanted to say so that we are, um, we are continuing to plan for uh, our opening. And that will uh, be more information. There's information in the newsletter on the website. Uh, we're aiming to have uh, to be open at 6 a.m. for Zazen, uh, Monday through Friday. Uh, the uh, Saturday schedule remain will remain as it is, and the uh, Monday schedule, uh, we will continue to have the Way Seeking Mind talks and open discussion at, at 8 o'clock after 7.30 Zazen. And Monday the 6th, we're going to have an open discussion so we can talk about the details of how we're going to do this, but it's exciting. It's exciting that we're going to actually be able to have face-to-face -face Zazen and uh, welcome people back into the Zendo with precautions. So uh, I just wanted to let you know if this is news to you or remind you that this is happening. So, um, let's take a breath, find your posture, feel your feet on the ground. Enjoy this moment together. So my subject today is uh, what is happiness? And I was inspired to talk about this. I've been looking through this wonderful book, uh, which is backwards, The Zen Teachings of Homeless Kodo, uh, which is uh, brief passages from uh, Kodo Sawaki, one of the uh, one of the really important Soto teachers of the 20th century. Uh, and this book is, is it's a lovely book. It has it has his comments and then it has commentary by uh, his direct student, uh, Kocho Uchiyama Roshi and also by then by Uchiyama Roshi's student Shohaku Okamura Roshi uh, and so you get these these wonderful layers of comment uh, and I'll, I'll talk more about uh, Sawaki Kodo in uh, in future talks and and how 
there's an there's an intertwining of lineages uh, from uh, from Sawakoto, uh, also uh, an intertwining with Suzuki Roshi, and an intertwining with uh, Katagiri Roshi. Uh, all of these threads uh, kind of weave together into the fabric of our style of Soto Zen. And uh, it, it bears some further explication and exploration. So we'll, we'll do that in the future. I wanted to begin with uh, two quotations from some uh, Sawaki Roshi, uh, and then a story from my own life. So the first, these, these two are from the book. Uh, he says, once a horse and a cat had a discussion about what happiness is. I hear that they could not reach a conclusion. So just let that one settle for a moment. Once a horse and a cat had a discussion about what happiness is. I hear they couldn't reach a conclusion. In another piece by Sawaki, uh, he says, we are watched by Zazen, scolded by Zazen, obstructed by Zazen, dragged around by Zazen, and spend our life in tears. This is the happiest life, isn't it? We are watched by Zazen, scolded by Zazen, obstructed by Zazen, dragged around by Zazen, and spend our life in tears. This is the happiest life, isn't it? That's pretty good, I like that. Uh, so I wanted to tell you a story from my life. This is something that has lingered with me for it's now uh, close to 50 years. And it was, a, it was a turning occasion for me, although the turning was very slow. Sometimes, this, you know, we talk about sudden enlightenment and gradual enlightenment. And uh, this was absolutely a turning experience, but I think it took, it took about 30 or 40 years for the turning to happen. So Isaac Sanaki, my father, was an engineer by trade, but he really preferred to work with his hands. He was not a Zen practitioner by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and uh, he did tell me that if he had another chance to go around in life, uh, rather than being an engineer, he would have uh, he would have liked to have been just what we called a grease monkey. Uh, you know, someone who was up to his elbows in machinery. 
because uh, that's what really interested him. As a child, I watched him really carefully, as, ch as children do. And uh, he was a kind man. And uh, in small ways, he was always helping those around him. Uh, just being a friend, he would just immediately jump in to help them uh, fix a car or a boat. Uh, and he, he had a sense of, of ease in his body, uh, a comfort with himself that, uh, that at least I sensed. I never knew him to cultivate any kind of spirituality, uh, certainly not the secular Judaism of his, of his birth or anything else. But as I said, he was comfortable in his skin. He was down to earth. He was very much at home on the water. Uh, and I knew him to be a master sailor in any kind of seas or weather and several times in danger. Uh, I remember him being cool and uh, saving us from near disaster. That said, our relationship was pretty difficult. Uh, I think that he was troubled uh, by leaving four young children when he divorced my mother in 1960. I think this was a, a survival, I think of it as this, it was a survival move for him. Uh, and even then, I understood that for his sake, but really I lost a father's necessary presence. So then life goes on and in the 60s, um, my, my values, my activities, uh, the length of my hair and other aspects of appearance, uh, which were in line with the times, I think they made him really un uncomfortable and he was frightened for my sake, perhaps, and puzzled. Uh, and I had my own concerns. Uh, my interests, literary, political, musical, were really compelling. And I have many good friends, actually. Uh, many of them are still my friends. Uh, uh, but I was, as I've written elsewhere, uh, I was dogged by depression and by this kind of existential question of what was I supposed to do here on earth? Uh, and uh, it's troubling. I was troubled. So I think it was the summer of 1972. So that's, that is, wow, that's uh, 50 years ago. 
my father and his wife were, his second wife were, spent several days in San Francisco on, uh, I think, returned from a trip to the South Pacific. Uh, and uh, they were in town. At the same time, uh, my first marriage was kind of coming apart. Uh, I got married in the summer of 1969. Uh, and uh, I will say I am still friendly with my ex-wife, but we were really young, emotionally young, and we were really not ready to be able to deal with what marriage was. Anyway, uh, we were, we had moved from, we'd been doing couples counseling and moved from couples counseling into kind of strategic thinking about separation. And uh, we had decided to separate, but we also were clear that this was not a discussion that we were ready to have with my father and his wife. Uh, and uh, I just, I really dreaded having a conversation with him about it. Uh, so we pretended that everything was fine. Uh, and we hoped that he would buy the act. Uh, I don't, I don't think we were very good at it. Anyhow, one afternoon, during this visit, my, my father and I, uh, just the two of us were driving from Palo Alto, uh, where he'd been visiting some old friends and uh, he was driving and he turned to me and said, I wanna know, are you happy? Uh, and that was just an impossible question. Uh, I was, it, the question made me angry, it stung. Uh, and it stung because I had no answer and also because the answer was no. I don't remember my exact words, uh, but there was something to the effect that happiness was not my uh, not the standard I was reaching for or the goal that I had in life. Uh, being happy, I think I told him something like, being happy is not important to me. Uh, I want to be of use. That's how I want to live. And that's kind of where the conversation stopped. Uh, and, you know, there was, it ended up being further painful estrangement, but, uh, there's no need to talk about that. But his question has lingered with me for all these years. Are you happy? Uh, and the impact was not, the impact of that question was not sudden, as I said. Uh, the turning came really slowly. Uh, 
and it came, I came to understand that was a really important question, really good question. And it was a question that was motivated by love on his part and concern. And my answer was not wrong. Uh, there's happiness in serving others. Uh, and the fact is, if that service is without a kind of joy or determination, then usually it's marked by grim determination. And actually, that's part of what gets transmitted. So uh, there's, you know, it's a shadow side of uh, even the wish to be of use. Uh, and if utility is missing from happiness, then, you know, we can fall into a kind of soft focused narcissism. Unfortunately, uh, I have figured this out for myself. Uh, I'm not sure my father could have uh, articulated how this all fit together, but I am deeply grateful for that question because it's really a leading question. Over the years of practice, uh, I've encountered many teachers and, uh, you know, their work is saving sentient beings. Uh, and many of them, or certainly the ones that I respond to, have a kind of joy or lightness in what they do. And they they don't they transmit that to to those they encounter. Sojin certainly did. It's clear to me that Suzuki Roshi did. Uh, I feel that from other teachers I've had the opportunity to to meet with. Um, you know, I'm thinking at Blanche in our lineage, Blanche Hartman, Shoto Harada, uh, uh, Robert Aitken, uh, Mahagosananda, you know, just almost every teacher has some of this happiness as a light inside them. Uh, and we can learn from that and we can we can become like that uh they take what they do seriously i think sojin certainly took his his practice and his work as a teacher very seriously 
but he didn't take himself seriously. You know, if you listen to Suzuki Roshi's uh, tapes or listen to Sojin's tapes, they're, you know, they're all, they're always interrupted by their own laughter. You know, they are amused at what is arising even within themselves. They laugh a lot. So, um, you know, usually we think of things dualistically. We think of happiness and sadness, fortune and misfortune. These, these qualities, the dualistic qualities, imply each other. Uh, and the Buddha talks about this in, even in his first sermon, uh, when he's, uh, he's talking about the Four Noble Truths, and he's talking about the, the First Noble Truth, the truth of suffering. And then he, you know, he gives sort of a list of different things that are uh, what we take as suffering. He said, association with the unpleasant is suffering. Dissociation from the pleasant is suffering. And this is, uh, this is one of the circumstances of life. Suzuki Roshi says, everyone, everyone seeks true happiness, but happiness cannot be true happiness if it is not followed by composure. I think it means like, if it's not including composure. He said, usually happiness does not stay long. Sometimes we would rather not have it because happiness is usually followed by sorrow. And this is what we often experience in everyday life. So this is, uh, Diso the sorrow that follows happiness is the dissociation with what is pleasant. Uh, and it can be very simple. It's not just that sorrow follows happiness, it's just that uh, what we ordinarily call happiness is uh, not permanent. It's impermanent. It's going to move. Uh, and say, no, wait, I, I want to hold on to that. You know, that, that feels really good. I want to stay here, but we don't. Uh, but there's a word, so there's paired with dukkha. There is another word in uh, Pali and Sanskrit, which is sukha. Uh, and sukha is a word for happiness, but it's a happiness that is uh, that is not transient. It's a happiness that we can rely on. Uh, and in uh, one of the suttas, the Anana Sutta, 
in uh, the early Pali Suttas. The Buddha uh, talks about happiness for householders like ourselves. And uh, there are a number of types of happiness. One of them is, uh, well, there's right livelihood. In other words, earning your livelihood by doing something that is wholesome. That is, there's a kind of happiness in that, which I'm sure many of you experience. And sharing one's benefits and wealth and gifts freely that's also a kind of happiness that we have. And he says the highest happiness is that of blamelessness, of living a faultless and pure life without committing evil in thought, word, and deed. And I think that this is also what what Thich Nhat Hanh is talking about. Thich Nhat Hanh uh, speaks of happiness, he speaks of peace. He says, many people think excitement is happiness, but when you are excited, you are not peaceful. True happiness is based on peace. And we also come back as we always do in this, um, this practice that we have, which is, you might call it uh, the cult of Dogen, uh, but Dogen is pretty good. It's like, I don't mind, I don't mind being uh, a cult follower of Dogen. Uh, uh, he talks about this in uh, Instructions to the Cook in Tenzo Kyokun. Uh, he talks about, uh, in, in Tenzo Kyokun, he talks about three minds uh, that are essential to Buddhist practice. His parental mind, the, the care that a parent takes for a child to develop that for ourselves, to develop that mind so that we use that when we encounter anyone. Big mind which is what uh, Suzuki Roshi was speaking of all the time. You know, the mind that encompasses, includes everything and joyful mind. Uh, and Dogen writes, joyful mind is our spirit of happiness. We are fortunate to be able to, to be born as human beings and to prepare food we can offer to the three treasures. Is this not of great karmic significance? Therefore, we should be very happy. So if we're lucky, um, and I think many of us have had this experience, we, we encounter teachers who have this joyful mind who turn towards the circumstances of life with a bright spirit. Uh, and it's true that these, these seeds of joy are in each of us. 
uh, and our teachers nourish those seeds in themselves and helped us nourish them in ourselves so that they might blossom. And because our teachers uh, are of present day and ancient days were able to do this and develop joyful mind, uh, we can begin to see that we can do it too. Because my father had a sense of what was happiness and was kind of urging me in that direction. Uh, uh, very slowly, because I'm a slow horse, I could come to see it myself. Uh, admittedly, it's really hard to. Uh, it's well. I'm saying it. Sorry. It's easy to lose sight of joy these days. You know. All of a sudden, there's a, a terrible war. In Ukraine, there's terrible things going on all over the world, and in our own country. And we have grief and anger that can come in waves. But it's really good to try to remember what Dobin says. You know, our joy arises with preparing food for the three treasures and serving all beings. You know, there's a, a little group of people uh, here in BZC that has been uh, preparing sandwiches for homeless people and giving them out. Uh, before the pandemic, we, we twice a month, we were, uh, we were cooking uh, wonderful meals at the, uh, at the men's shelter. Um, there are people who go down to the, there's, there's people who are going to um, the Alameda County Jail out in Pleasanton, Dublin, and meeting people at night who are released from jail with nothing in the middle of the night, about a mile away from BART, you know, and just meeting them with some warm clothes and some food and some, you know, a little bit of money or a bar ticket or something like that. And these are just, these are just small things. There are things that people do every day. And uh, this is literally and figuratively preparing food for the three treasures. Uh, and it brings up joy. Joy, this joy or this happiness is an active quality, an active principle. It's not, uh, it's not something that we are necessarily born with. It comes with turning towards others, which also comes from turning towards ourselves. Uh, 
turn towards ourselves. This is the practice of zazen. And I think that for me, it's the practice of zazen that has been the, the motor that's allowed me to turn from some pretty dark places, places of frustration, places of um, feeling not capable of doing something. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, this, this quotation from uh, Sawaki Koto is great. We are watched by Zazen, scolded by Zazen, obstructed by Zazen, dragged around by Zazen, and we spend our life in tears. Uh, this is the happiest life, isn't it? This is the life that we've, that we've chosen. And it's interesting because uh, Uchiyama's comment on Sawaki Kodo uh, says, we practice in the midst of delusion without knowing whether we are to fall into hell or to be born in the pure land. And this is in some mysterious way, this is our happiness, to be at peace, accepting whatever is arising moment by moment is our, is our happiness. Okamura she comments on the comment by saying, we cannot expect any ecstasy greater than right here, right now, our everyday lives. And this is really the Soto perspective. And if, if we can accept our circumstance, then we can be happy. A friend of mine uh, died last week. Um, wonderful woman. Her her name is Paula Green, and she was a uh, a Buddhist activist who did Buddhist trainings all around the world. And she was one of the people that I met immediately when I came to Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Uh, and uh, she's also, she's the person who, who actually uh, educated me about Burma, and that's going back 30 years. And it seems that she had had lung cancer, uh, and had one lung removed and did fine for quite a number of years, and then the cancer returned in the other lung. Uh, and she knew about it, and there wasn't really anything to be done. Uh, and uh, her health took a sudden turn about two weeks ago, and then she died very quickly. And she wrote a letter to people uh, 
it's dated the 16th and I think she died on the 22nd. And it's, it's so marked by the ease and acceptance of her circumstance. Uh, you know, I don't, it's not that she wanted to die. And there's, there's some sorrow mixed in, but there was peace with it. You could feel uh, a kind of abiding happiness and gratitude for the life that she had led. And I also feel like, even though there was certainly a lot of discomfort, uh, experienced by Sojin when he died, fundamentally, he was peaceful. And I know that the last, the last encounters I, I had and that I saw, um, there was this deep acceptance which flows from this fountainhead of happiness, I think. And All I can say is this is what I wish for all of us. And this is what I think is offered, not in a concrete way, but in the mysterious gift. This is, this is the gift of the Buddhas to us. Actually, I've been I've been reading in the last months and thinking about it for a couple of years, I've been reading Shinran, who was a contemporary of Dogen's. And uh, in, in the teaching of Shinran, uh, which has some resonances with Dogen very much, uh, The practice is the recitation of the name of Amida Buddha, Buddha, Namo Amida Butsu, Namo Amida Butsu, Namo Amida Butsu. Uh, and uh, this recitation is not a recitation of practice. It's not a practice, it's not a practice of recitation. It's uh, with one sincere expression of refuge in Amida Buddha, then in faith, we are born in the pure land and every subsequent rep repetition which falls on our breath uh, is an expression of gratitude very much as we frame the idea of uh, practice enlightenment in Dogen's, uh, in Dogen's school, that we don't practice to become enlightened. We practice to express our enlightenment.
in Shin Buddhism, you repeat the you repeat the Nembutsu to express your gratitude. And I think that this is. I, mean, I, I will. I'll talk about this more as I've been exploring Shinran as well. But uh, you don't have to be a Shin Buddhist to feel grateful. We can feel grateful right now. We can feel grateful every time we sit down and cross our legs to Zazen. We can feel grateful every time we sit down to a meal uh, or any other of our activity where we can take a moment. So let's all be scolded and obstructed and dragged around by Zazen. And even if we're in tears, uh, as we've heard uh, in years past, don't worry, be happy. So I'm going to stop there and uh, turn it back to Heiko, who will uh, Call on people and uh, read comments in the chats if you have it. Uh, so thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Please go ahead with your question. Morning, Hosan Roshi. Uh, I you mentioned about sukha uh, relying on, and it brought up. Uh, Bodhisattva relies on Prajna Paramita. So is there a relationship between Prajna Paramita and happiness? That's a really good question. Uh, I think that to me that the obvious answer is yes. Uh, you know that uh, to be You know, to course in Prajna Paramita, which is, which is what we, what we say when we recite the Heart Sutra, uh, practicing Prajna Paramita. Uh, to practice it means to accept, uh, to accept impermanence, non-self, and certainly circumstances both of dukkha and sukha as naturally arising we you know practicing prajnaparamita means including and accepting everything that comes along and i think that that's what that's the gist of that that uh kind of fierce quotation from uh soaki koto dragged around, obstructed, etc., uh, means to really encounter every circumstance of life with uh, not even necessarily with, in, with um, equanimity. Sometimes we may meet it with, with tears or we may meet it with gales of laughter just each moment 
to be able to live each moment fully is practicing Prajnaparamita. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Ozan Roshi, I'm going to call on myself and ask the question, when happiness is absent and blame is everywhere, how do we escape the ladder and find return to happiness? Um, yeah, that's really hard. Uh, I mean, the first thing that that I would do uh, is to shine the light inward. Uh, there's there's no one else responsible for my state of mind but me. Uh, if I'm feeling blame, you know, there might be certainly there there can be some kind of catalyst. There can be even injustice. But uh, you know, as it says, uh, I think in the early verses of the Dhammapada, we are the we are the owners of our of our minds. So um, anger is not is not inappropriate, but it's it's just an energy, and sometimes it can be useful and cleansing. But but blame is uh, is corrosive and it first of all corrodes oneself and then others feel it and uh it has a toxicity you know people don't uh it's not something one want people want to approach or be around so first i would take you know, I take responsibility. I try to really investigate myself. And uh, that's, that's the, that's where I would begin. Thank you. Thank you, Jose. We have a question from Kurt, please go ahead, Kurt. Hi, Kurt. Yeah, hi, Hosan. Thank you for the uh, interesting talk. Um, you know, I, that when you asked, you know, said that question about your father asking you whether you were happy or not, I kind of asked myself, and then I thought, no. And then I kind of thought, yes. And then I thought, I don't even know what happiness is. And uh, in uh, the whole idea of like happiness uh, is in some ways uh, to me seems almost kind of irrelevant, right? And it, it, which is kind of odd, but I, I uh, work in the field of psychology and there's like a, a lot of emphasis in positive psychology and sort of seeking happiness and doing little things like little activities. And I think, you know, that's 
good and seems to be helpful for people. And I've actually explored that myself. I was taking the Berkeley Happiness, Greater Good Science Happiness course for a while. But at some point, uh, I couldn't help but wonder that the reaching for happiness actually pushes it away in the sense, right? That we can be sort of grasping for this state that is really, if it's gonna be there, it's gonna happen to you while you're doing something else in, in, in sort of a way, right? And uh, I, I think back to something that occurred to me, and I don't know what you think about this, that kind of fits what you were saying. I remember years ago taking a philosophy class and I guess the Aristotelian view of happiness is that happiness is an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. So it isn't sort of like the hedonic, you know, I'm gonna be feeling a certain way. It's, it, it's an expression uh, of, of your, yourself, right? Of your soul. It's done in a virtuous way. It's an activity, I guess. And sometimes that activity could be really sad and uncomfortable. And, and sometimes it could be joyous, but uh, yeah. Anyways, well, just your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, thank you. That's, yeah. So I think that what we focus on in this in practice, practice is, is activity. Um, that, you know, uh, enlightenment is an activity. Uh, practice is an activity. Faith is an activity. All of these are active principles. And happiness is an activity, but it's my experience, my inner experience is uh, I think it's about, it's been about removing barrier removing internal barriers uh, or actually allowing better allowing internal barriers to fall away uh, and that's what i feel like i've seen that's that's the way i see what what arises in me uh, and uh, you know I think when our teachers uh, are laughing or expressing joy uh, you see that uh, there's some unobstructed quality is an internal there's a the internal obstructions have have kind of fallen away and so it's not something while it's an activity it's it's an activity and it's not the activity of becoming happy it's the activity of expressing happiness and joy uh, and uh so that's that's the way i tend to think of it and of course you know what you know what i was doing was like coming at it from several different angles that there's there's all kinds of conventional expressions of uh, what happiness is, and we're trying to arrive at it from a Buddhist perspective. So, thank you. Yeah, thanks.
Oh, just a, a last thought. You know, there's interesting in the in the positive psychology research. I wish I could remember the term, but there was a recent study where they looked at uh, people's desire for happiness. They always frame it hedonically, like it's it's the most amount of ple- more pleasure than displeasure. And there is something kind of like a textured life. And there's a good proportion of people that would prefer a textured life. It's almost like a rich life versus just a kind of droning, pleasant life in, in, in sort of a way, right? And that's, I thought was interesting. I wish I could remember that what they, how they framed that term, but you know, this kind of richness to life that includes all of this texture and that it isn't always pleasant, right? So I think right. it, it's right. how you frame the, yeah. the thing. Yeah. But, Thank you. Uh, great, great topic. Thank you. Thank you, Kurt, very much for your question and comments. We have two uh, chat questions and two hands raised. Yeah. Let me get to the first question from Nathan Britton. He asked, Hosan, if you would speculate about the horse and the cat. Yeah. And I guess the nature of their debate. What uh, Uchiyama Roshi says is, as long as we view happiness within the duality of fortune, misfortune, and in terms of our ever-changing emotions, we'll be divided within ourselves like the horse and the cat, and we'll never reach a conclusion. I mean, the thing is that uh, the horse and the cat have very different uh, different standards in the dualistic world. Uh, and uh, so does each of us. But we're talking about a kind of happiness that is, uh, that transcends the dualistic world. Uh, and both a horse and a cat, if you, you know, if you could actually reason with them, you, you would know that uh, there were, you would look for the circumstances in which they are at ease. And that would be where they might agree instead of kind of the various particular things they might want. Thank you, Hosan. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, Carol Paul asks, is happiness the same as joyfulness? What is the difference? I don't know. I don't know what the difference is. Um, uh, no, there's a difference, but yeah, joy is. I'm sorry. Um, I see them as somewhat interchangeable, but that's in the, you know, this is very tricky because we're, uh, you know, I'm using a very fluid definition of the terms, and so I don't want to pin it down. Uh, but I will say that uh, the teachers that I've gravitated to, uh, I think that I think that their joyfulness arises from their fundamental happiness, which is their fundamental acceptance of the way things are. Uh, and then they were able to be joyful, you know. Sojourner Suzuki Roshi or the Dalai Lama 
laughing or Maha Gosananda laughing. It's like that's joy that arises from their, their the comfort and ease and peace of their mind. Thank you, Hosan Roshi. Uh, we just uh, lost our two questioners. Kika, if you're still there, or Susan Marvin, if you would like to ask your questions, please raise your hands again. Uh, thank you, uh, Heiko-san. Um, thank you, Hosan. It's nice to peek into what's going on at Berkeley Zen Center. I really enjoyed your talk. Um, it's great to I see you there. You looks like you're in the library, is that right? You know, I'm in the guest house. And, oh, the guest uh, house. Oh, yeah. uh, Worker and I, we have to maintain working. So I'm sorry to be sewing while you're speaking, but um, oh, it's okay. Uh, uh, the attention, the, the divided attention. But you know, I really appreciate you're talking about um, the transient happiness, you know, and then our happiness that transcends um, dualistic thinking, right? So you can have the abiding joy, and then also have problems that make you unhappy. Yes. You know? So I really appreciate that. And um, I wanted to say too that um, someone asked me recently, uh, you know, what's one word to describe your old teacher? <laughs> and I said, unobstructed, it just came right off my tongue. And, and, um, and uh, so I appreciate your every word um, uh, uh, so much. Um, I guess a question is, you know, when, when we talk about, um, how do we find our happiness in these trying times? You know, that, that question comes up so much and how do we maintain our happiness in trying times? And you did go into say, um, serving the Sangha, you know, uh, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit more about, about yes. that. I want to just very briefly, cause I know we're short of time. Um, I believe that we, come to, I come to, I come to, let me just speak for myself. I come to happiness in connection. Uh, and that's in connection with Sangha, but I have a very broad idea of Sangha, which is kind of, anyone can be Sangha at any moment. If if and when I connect with them. And uh, Sangha is a, is a, the concrete Sangha is a venue for that. But really, the Sangha is the Sangha of all beings. And if I connect, then I'm happy, everything is fine. And if I feel divided, then I'm suffering. Yeah, I really agree with that as well, you know. Um... I recently discovered it that, you know, my practice is people. People is my practice. And uh, right. it brings me a lot of pleasure. And and an intimate connection is really where it is at. So, yeah, when I'm unhappy, just like Sojin used to say, you know, if you can't help yourself, just go help others. And that, that brings you the joy. Right. So, right. So we work from the, we can work from the inside out or the outside in. Uh, I'm also reminded of something that my teacher Harada she said, I was asking him about precepts. He said, well, if there were no people, there'd be no precepts. So, you know, it is about being with people. Thank you.